Welcome to the Exam Study Expert Podcast, helping you hit the grades of your dreams at school, college, and university through the science of fast learning and lasting memory, the psychology of study productivity, and the secrets to great exam technique. And now your host, the Cambridge University trained psychologist who's dedicated his life to helping students study better and outsmart their exams, William Wadsworth. Whether you're an elite athlete, a high-performing business person, prominent politician or even the Dalai Lama, chances are you've got a coach who's responsible for making sure that each and every day you show up as the very best version of yourself that you can be. One such coach is Lucy Ratcliffe, who works with senior leaders at major companies like Comcast, American Express and Citigroup to make sure they show up with the mindset to win each and every day and to shine when it really matters. So I'm absolutely thrilled that she's here on the Exam Study Expert podcast to share some of those insights from decades of teaching and help you as a student be the very best possible version of yourself, whether that's managing your stress and anxiety, finding ways to feel good about the opportunities in front of you, or just how to deliver a performance on exam, worthy, on exam day that's worthy of those top grades. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. I certainly got a lot out of it uh, and I've been thinking about these sorts of things for years. Um, so without further ado, let's dive right in. So Lucy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. I'd love to start by having you share a bit more of your story because um, I think there are some fascinating lessons for people in the choices you've made through your life. Well, the, the genuine answer to that question, Will, is it's a total accident how I ended up doing the work that I'm doing today. So I started out all through my childhood and teenage years being utterly obsessed with the theatre and performance. And my dream was to be the greatest actress of my generation. I came from a theatrical background. My parents were both writers. So I'd grown up in a very chaotic, artistic, creative environment where the thing that had set my parents free in their lives was education. They were the first both of them the first people in their families to get into university and they both got into Oxford University. So they were there in the late 50s, early 60s, having a fine time. So I grew up with the passion for the theatre and the desire to do something with my brain. Both of those things were really prized in my family. And so I followed a fairly traditional path, worked really hard at school, got into a great university, studied English literature at York University, and all through that time was performing all of the time, doing lots and lots of theatre primarily. I wrote a one-woman show. Looking back now, I can't quite believe I had the chutzpah to do this, but I, I performed a one-woman show that I'd written about John Keats's girlfriend, Fanny, Fanny Braun, for Kenneth Branagh's theatre company. I'd I won't go into the details of the story, but I basically grabbed him at the in the theatre bar where I was working as a, as an usher selling programmes and said, I've written a play which I think you should mm-hmm. read. And at the time, I hadn't written the play. So that was one of the early lessons to me in confidence and doing things that <laughs> help you rely on instinct rather than necessarily judgment. So I performed a great deal all through my university career as well, decided not to go to drama school, which was one of the conventional past people in my position took and got some work as an actor and had a wonderful time all through my 20s doing all sorts of great work and also like most actors being out of work for big chunks of time which was one of the things that I found very very difficult and very frustrating so in one of those periods where I was horribly out of work 
one of my friends said to me, I've met this woman that I think you should meet. She was, she's this crazy Scottish woman and she works with actors in business. And I had no idea really what any of this was about, but turned up to meet Caroline Sammy as she was then, Caroline McHugh as she became, who saw something in me that I had not seen in myself and said to me, I'd love you to come and work with me as a workshop assistant. So back in those days, our business was called Perfect Pitch And it was very straight down the line presentation skills. We worked with people on helping them prepare and deliver fantastic pitches and presentations. And the link between performance and business was something that we went very big on in those days. So Caroline employed lots of actors to help bring our workshops to life. And it was great fun, high energy. We did lots of work with industries like uh, advertising agencies, big corporate organizations like British Airways and Sony were our big clients back then. And that's how it began. And within two or three years, I I tried to run both careers simultaneously. But within two or three years, I realized that this was my real love. So I stopped acting and devoted myself full time to working with Caroline as her apprentice, was lucky enough to travel the world with her learning our work from the ground up in all sorts of amazing locations and different environments. And that's really what led me to the place I'm in today. So as an organization, Ideology works all over the world with a variety of different clients from advertising, marketing, media, banking, professional sports. So we get to work with all kinds of different people in different environments, asking some of the questions that we'll touch on today and exploring some of the things that help people define their own success and what that word means to them. So complete accident, had no idea this world existed and fell upon it. Uh, you could call it you could call it fate or you could call it luck. Um, but yeah, it, it was definitely me finding my home when I met Caroline. I mean, I love I love that so much about that because, um, you know, when I talk to young people today, a lot of a lot of the time people either have no idea what they're trying to do in life or they have such a fixed uh, idea of what the road their their life is going to take a, uh, falling ahead of them. It, it, it so often happens to people that you end up thinking you're going to start in one place and then you end up doing something totally different but it's what you absolutely love and what you were you were born to do so just that that kind of uh, serendipity of uh, you know finding finding your way into to what you what you really want. I also really love the the, the Kenneth Branagh um, anecdote I think the idea that if you want something you just just ask and the worst that can happen is they'll say no i think i think the interesting thing about that is if i'd stopped to think too hard about consequence i'm sure even my bold ambitious 18 year old self would have gone oh dear no not a good idea but it was that precise combination between motivation I was very ambitious but equally I'm just going to do it without allowing my thinking to get in the way and tell me the things that could go wrong for sure for sure it's curious when you when you're sort of looking back at your own experiences as a young person sort of back in the day at you know high school and university um and potentially from your more recent experience of of working with people of, of that sort of age what are the sort of the biggest challenges you see um in terms of sort of mindset and people at that age projecting the best version of themselves uh, to the world one of the things that terrifies me as a parent of a, of a young pre-teenage daughter is how much harder I think it is now for young people to 
forge their way through their education and into their early career. In, in Back in my day, 100 years ago, it was, if you got into a decent university and were reasonably smart, worked reasonably hard, it was much more a case for my generation that we got to pick and choose what we did. And we had lots of organizations coming to talk to us all of the time about the opportunities there might be. Now, I do a lot of work with young women in particular who are starting out in education, just in their university education specifically. And I know things are very, very different now. So my experience of working with people of that age is that you have to work twice as hard. You have to be really focused about what it is that you're working towards. And by that, I don't mean having a clearly mapped out career path necessarily. I've just given you my example of how mine completely evolved along the way but I think that's that motivation to make something of the opportunities that you have in front of them or to move towards being the best version of yourself you can be for want of a better phrase I think the work that we do is very much connected with possibility and potential so it's a it's a combination of recognizing okay if I want to move forward in my life I need to work hard that's the qualification criteria but also be connected and committed to that journey in our own development that is so important, the desire to move and grow and evolve different parts of ourselves as we go through the different stages of our lives. I think that's one of the most important skills for young people starting out in education and in the world of work today, to be flexible enough and to be able to ask big questions of themselves around not what do I want to do for a living, but who do I want to be? What kind of life do I want to live? How can I be better and more skillful at applying all the different skills and talents that I have in the service of those goals? So my advice is always to ask the, the best possible questions of yourself. And those questions will lead you towards an answer. It might not be a nice, neat answer with a full stop at the end, because I think we're always in the process of evolving and moving forward. But if you focus on asking really strong, powerful questions around what makes you feel happy, what makes you feel alive, what makes you feel like you, it's not a bad starting point. Mm. It sounds like for you, those the answer to those questions that, you know, say age 18 was a lot about per- performing and... Mm. Um, sharing something with with the world I guess and when you were talking about you know motivation and and drive is is that is that sort of where where you see motivation coming from that idea that you want to what you know where you want to end up and what you want to to share with the world it's a it's a massive subject and I'll, I'll everything that I talk about is based on a combination of experience and intuition so I like to mm. describe it as informed intuition rather than necessarily hard data and science although there is all the all of that stuff to to back some of this up but my perception of motivation is that it's energy it's the energy that drives us to get out of bed in the morning to get up and go through the ordinary magic of living every day so I think understanding where your motivation comes from and what creates it in you and I think that's where Science is not necessarily as helpful as self-awareness in this, because I think that's different for all of us. And I think, again, by focusing on asking questions like, what makes me feel alive? What am I doing when I feel most like myself? Those are the sorts of questions that can help us tap into our awareness of our motivation Mm. and recognize that it's personal. 
again, I think it, going back to the point I made about um, having to be really good and work really hard uh, for, for the, the young people starting out in their careers and in education today, understanding your own drivers and your own motivation, what gives you that energy is such useful work because it helps you point yourself in the, in the right direction, in the direction where you're going to find the things that help you find that space in the universe that's got your name on it. Yeah, for sure. Um, there's a lot of uh, there's there's a lot of potential roadblocks on the way to to success. A lot of points where you might you might fall off the rails. You might not be getting the grades you want. You might be phoning a course harder than you'd anticipated. Any any advice for for kind of getting back on with things and and refinding that motivation if you're if you're stuck in a bit of a rut or you're you know you're just you're just starting to doubt yourself. I think the the thing that I talk about most often in the work that I do with, and this could be with graduates or senior leaders sitting at the top of uh, enormous corporations, one of the things that tends to unite people in those very different stages of their careers is how their internal conversation can be the biggest determinant of their individual success, whatever that word means to each individual or failure. So, in my experience in the work that, that we do at Ideology, helping people understand that internal conversation, what we're saying to ourselves and understanding where that's useful and where that holds us back is one of the most significant things that we can do to help ourselves get past those roadblocks. So internal internal conversation then is sort of that, it's what we what we tell each ourselves about the world around us and ourselves so it might be um i don't know i'm i'm not very good at maths or um you know i'm finding this hard or or, or that that kind of thing. is that is that the sort of thing you you mean exactly hmm. so those are both great examples will so you you find yourself on a course or faced with some revision in a subject that you're finding really challenging depending on how you show up in that internal conversation the voices in your head <laughs> that you allow yourself to listen to will make the biggest difference in what you're then able to go on and do. So if you face a piece of work thinking, this is impossible, I can't do this, I've always been terrible at maths and I've never been any good at it, why am I even doing this course? We go into this catastrophic thinking in our own minds. Mm. The voices in our heads take us to that position of disaster very, very quickly. So if you can catch yourself in the action of going down one of those rabbit holes in your own thinking, you get a golden opportunity by noticing that hmm. to then make a different choice about whether you're going to listen to that voice in your head. It's very different if faced with a really difficult, challenging piece of work or a course that you find difficult to think and say to yourself, right, this is hard. Hmm. And if I'm going to have any chance of doing what I want to do, on this course or this piece of work, then I need to work out what I need to do to be able to do the best I can. I need to back myself that I can do this. There's a lovely old cliche that goes back to the beginning of time where people will, will say a version of whatever you tell yourself you can or can't do, you'll be right. Yeah. So our philosophy is very connected to that. We can create our own success or failure in the way that we think and the way that we allow ourselves to connect to those thoughts one of the most useful things, I think, and, and something I will talk to clients about all the time is a thought like, I'm terrible at maths. It's not a fact. That's a perception. That's an internal perception that we're feeling in response to something being difficult. So recognizing that a thought is not a fact, it's just a thought. It's just something that's passing across your mind like a cloud will pass across the sky. 
And by recognizing that, you get to engage with the thought differently and know that, okay, there might be a cloud, but in a minute, the sun can come out again. So it gives us that opportunity to observe our thinking and ask a really simple question. Does it help me to think that I'm terrible at maths right now? Or is it getting in my way? And if the answer is it's not helpful, then there are some simple things you can do to help you create thoughts that are more useful. So what, what, what would be the next steps then? What would you, what would you suggest for, for dealing with those kind of thoughts once, once we've acknowledged them? Well, there's a, there's a device in our work that we use to help people analyse the different sides of our internal conversation, the positive voices in our heads that drive us forward and the negative voices that hold us back. And we have based that technique on an old legend that shows up in many, many different cultures. And some of you may well have come across a version of this before. So in the story we talk about, the protagonist is a a Native American Indian chief. And one of the members of his tribe goes to him one day and says, tell me, how do you win the battle in your head between the good things you think about yourself and the bad things you think about yourself? So the chief thinks for a moment and then he says, well, I see that battle as the fight between two dogs. There's the good dog in my head and there's the bad dog in my head. So the brave thinks for a moment and says, well, which dog wins the fight? And the chief says, whichever dog I feed the most. So this gives us a a really useful analogy for helping us analyze those two different sides of our thinking. The good dog that can be really, really good. That little voice in your head that tells you you've got this, you can, you always pull this off, you can do it often a very simple, insistent voice versus the bad dog that can be really mean. Mm. And I think one of the really useful questions always to ask of yourself when you're in one of those situations, when you're caught up in your own negative thinking, is would you talk to anybody else in the way that you talk to you sometimes? So would you say to one of your friends or somebody in your family that you're really stupid and you're terrible at that and maybe the answer is yes in which case you've got some other work to do but for most people they wouldn't dream of talking to another human being in the way that they talk to themselves sometimes so the good dog bad dog analogy enables us to be able to separate ourselves from the emotion of thinking something like I'm terrible at this I can't do it to that place of objectivity where we can ask some simple questions like, is that true that I'm useless at this? Where's the evidence to support that thought? Or what would be a more useful thought to think right now? Maybe thinking I can do this and I'll give it a go and see how well I can get through this. Maybe those sorts of lines of thinking like where you're backing yourself are more useful in those sorts of crisis situations where we're doubting ourselves. Mm. Yeah, I mean, th- just from observation, it seems that with uh, with social media and Facebook and Snapchat and all the rest of it, people um, are so often presenting these uh, fantastic versions of themselves uh, to, to to their friends, and uh, and it's they're showing off their their very best attributes. So it's so easy to when you when you see all of that, feel quite inferior by Absolutely. by comparison. Yeah. Um, and so finding those ways, as you're saying, to, you know, feed the good dogs, um, feed the good thoughts about, um, you know, what does make you, uh, what does make you, you and a really valuable person in the world. What, what are you good at? What, what do you do well? Um, 
and uh, and and focus on on that and downplay the the negative as much as you can. Yeah. There's, I don't know if you've come across Carol Dweck's line of work on growth mindset, but she talks about um, we've sort of been using I'm bad at maths as a bit of a, an example, but she would say um, whenever you catch yourself telling yourself oh, I'm bad at maths, change that don't say I'm bad at maths say I'm not very good at maths yet um and adding that word yet um adds that that element of potential that you know with a bit of um if you if you continue to 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 strive and to to put in the right kind of effort um you you might be able to turn turn the situation around absolutely I think I'm very a big fan of Carol Dweck's work and there are many experts working in this field saying a version of the same thing so I think Mm. it's always great to to recognize when there's that consistency of voices saying something that is very connected which is that we are the author Mm. of those voices we can change the conversation and by changing the conversation you change the outcome and I think that's one of the most powerful things to hold on to not just in the context that we're talking around about study and education but the point you make about social media where we're there are so many voices conspiring to make us feel less in whatever way whether it's how we look how clever we are all those different judgments that are out there trying to put us all into boxes by focusing on the one thing we can take control of which is ourselves and understanding how to talk to ourselves, how to esteem ourselves, how to make choices based on simple things like observing how we're thinking and feeling. That's work that pays off. And I think if some of the senior leaders that I work with across the world had been taught how to do that at 18, 19 years old in the way that we're lucky enough to get to work with young people today at that stage in their lives, who knows where where they where their potential could have got to. Because I think, as Carol Dweck's work recognises, the potential for growth in our own brains is extraordinary. And the more we understand ourselves, the better placed we are, I think, to be able to tap into some of that potential. Mm, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's really, really good. I wanted to talk a little bit about performing under pressure because I know this is something you help uh, business leaders with a lot uh, today, you know, performing in the in the presentation um and and so forth i think there's something in there for for students as well um there's a lot of pressurized situations when you're a student be that um performing in an exam in an exam situation or perhaps if you're in a um a, a lot of uh college and university level courses now uh, uh, have a heavily uh, interactive style of of lecture where you actually get graded on your performance in that in that lecture or in that seminar and what you contribute uh, to to that class debate do you have any uh, any any kind of starter advice for for students in those kind of circumstances for, for 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 handling performing under pressure well one of the things that i think can be really significant is recognizing that often some of the feedback we're given and often by people that are very well-meaning maybe it's friends or family or people that care about us people will often tell us in those high the high pressure situations not to be nervous and Mm. I think that's advice that is of very little help to us when we're in the grip of often really powerful physical emotional symptoms you know I've worked with people that get so nervous one woman used to faint before she had to give presentations to senior audiences and people that are sick burst into tears really powerful 
physical manifestations of the nerves. And to, t- to be told by anybody not to feel that is another pressure. So we try and squash the nerves down and make them disappear. Whereas really, I think the most useful thing to do is to welcome them in and recognize that your nerves are, if you flip it around and, and see them in a different light, they're your performance adrenaline. They're the things that are going to help you rise to the challenge that's been set so even after all these years of performing and delivering the work that I do I still get really nervous I've got a session coming up this week which I've been nervous about for months ever since I knew it was in my diary and I've trained myself to to think not only is that okay but it's useful it's what's going to get me through it's going to give me the energy and the drive to do a good job so the first thing to do is to welcome in your nerves and accept that they're a useful part of the process I think there's a lot of work too that's being done around understanding how useful things like mindfulness and meditation can be. So even if you strip that down into its most basic form, which is allowing yourself to breathe, breathe deeply as you walk into the exam room, as you face the pressure that Mm. you're in front of, allowing yourself to connect to your breath and be calm and collected so that you can be in the optimum state to be able to deliver on whatever you have to do. And the the third thing that I I think is really important as well as the breathing is to to plant that voice in your head that tells you that you'll be fine. Mm. You've got this, back yourself. That's the, the two things that I will say to myself before a challenge still are trust, trust yourself, and energy in my in my work it's important for me to en- to be energized in my delivery otherwise nobody else will be so there'll be a different version of that for everybody but developing that little internal conversation with yourself or mantra if that is a, a useful phrase it can be a bit loaded for some people but a little line that reminds you that you'll be fine that you've got this so it's the combination of allowing the nervous energy in because it's an important part of the process staying calm through that so that the nerves don't paralyze us and backing yourself trusting yourself even the most horrible exam will be finished at some point and you'll still be alive at the end of it life will still go on so I think the perspective that that brings whatever happens I'm going to be okay is a useful message I think to plant when when we're breathing any thoughts on on exactly how we we do that is it just about slowing the slowing the breathing down and breathing more more deeply and and and, and consciously i think the most important thing to do and this is where the age old piece of advice comes into play is to breathe deeply from the diaphragm what happens when we're nervous is we tend to start breathing from the chest so i'm doing it now and you can hear the difference in my voice i'm literally running out of air because there's no breath to support me it's a horrible place to be so particularly if you're in an oral exam if you're panic breathing you've got no breath to support you and you're going to feel horrible so one of the things to do just before you fall asleep at night is a good time to practice this and anybody that does any kind of sport or practices yoga will be very connected to different forms of breathing is to just Lie, when you're lying down, put your hands on your stomach and feel the natural motion of your stomach being pushed in and out. That's the diaphragm working. And that's the state of breath that we're born with. When you look at a newborn baby breathing, you'll see their little tummies going in and out. And as we grow up and become more affected by pressures of bad posture and running around and doing lots of things at the same time, our posture becomes worse and worse. So we forget to breathe in the way that we're designed to, which is those deeply supported diaphragmatic breath so by pushing your breath down taking the deepest breath that you can and if you're doing it 
from the diaphragm, breathing from the diaphragm. There should be no movement at all in your chest. It should all come from your stomach. So it pushes the stomach right out. If you imagine a pair of bellows inside your stomach, the air expands the bellows, and then you've got the power of the breath to push up over your vocal cords to form the sound. So slowing your breathing down, deepening it, and taking your time. I think two or three deep breaths before walking into an exam room or before walking into an oral exam in particular is going to stand you in good stead. I'm doing it right now and I'm feeling a lot better already. <laughs> well, it does. It calms us down. Um, I mean, you, you did a lot of acting when you were growing up. Would you, would you ever um, advise, not necessarily acting, but some kind of, I guess, practice uh, in, in working under pressure and perhaps performing under pressure for those, that particularly, for, particularly for those who it feels kind of uncomfortable to do? Is, is, would, that be, would that be a good good thing for people to to incorporate into their their lives a couple of things there i think practicing anything helps us to build competence which helps us in turn build confidence which is one of the key things that we talk about in our work pushing yourself into situations that are uncomfortable so if you're naturally introverted and hate the thought of any kind of performance it's probably an interesting path for you to follow to to explore where that discomfort comes from and push yourself into those places which make you feel uncomfortable so that's always a piece of advice I give all of the people I work with what makes you feel really uncomfortable whatever that is it's a fairly good indication that'd be useful for you to get better at that and build your competence in it so the skills of performance and we we see this in our, our work all the time if you're really good at giving a presentation public speaking you tend to do well in terms of the opportunities that come your way and the opportunities that you can seize, seize, seize along your way. So those are qualities that are prized in most organizations, certainly most that I've worked in. So the ability to be really good on your feet, building your skill in being able to articulate your thinking and being able to stand up in front of a room full of people, they're great skills to get under your belt at an early stage in your career. And they're immensely practical skills that are very easy to learn any decent presentation skills session or class on performance is going to tell you some of the basic things that you need to know about using your body language using your voice articulating your thinking so that's definitely a skill set that I think is prized in organizations any job interview you're likely to be asked to present your thinking in some shape or form so if it's an area of anxiety for you I think it's a real opportunity to get to grips with that early on and practice the more you do it the more you present the more you articulate your thoughts when you're under pressure the more skilled you'll become yeah in making those things really feel more comfortable yeah for sure for sure so we've talked we've talked about quite a few um i think super helpful areas um for 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 students today is are there any other um areas you'd like to touch on based on your experience working with with business leaders that could be could be helpful I think that the recognition that I work with most of the time is that most of the people I'm lucky enough to work with are really smart and know exactly what it is that they need to do to get better. And again, it's one of those skills that if we develop early on in our lives can be terribly useful. So that ability to be clear about what you're good at is really important. And people often feel very uncomfortable about articulating the things that they're great at because it can feel arrogant or overconfident. And again, we get messages planted in 
um, in our thinking from early on in our lives that we mustn't be those things. We mustn't be too confident or get too big for our boots. So having a really objective sense of being clear on what you're good at, being able to answer the question, why you? Why would anybody listen to you, hire you, follow you as a, as a leader as you go through your career? Those sorts of questions, if we can't answer them, we can't expect other people to. So having a clear sense of what you're good at and being balanced in your thinking between the stuff that you're good at and the stuff that you think you're not so good at. So you used some great examples earlier, Will, of how categorical we are in our language about what we think we can do. So you'll hear people say, oh, I'm not creative at all, or I'm terrible at this, or I'm not good at that. Whenever you hear yourself saying something like that out loud or in, in your own head, it's mm -hmm. worth questioning that because says who? Who says that you're not creative or good at maths or good at languages or good at writing essays? There's all sorts of ways in which by throwing those thoughts up in the air, new thoughts can come and we can maybe change those around. So being clear around what we're good at and why, being balanced about the things that we want to get better at so that we can be really clear and motivated on how to do that, how to build skill in new areas of confidence. Those are the things that I think are, are really useful for people to get to grips with and to be able to say without any caveats in a really clean way, I'm really good at this is very hard for lots of people. So again, being good at that earlier on in your education or your career helps you when you're in those rooms where people are wanting to know from you what it is that you have to offer. If you've got a great answer for that, then you're halfway towards showing people why they should hire you or give you a first. That's fantastic. That's really good. Um, thank you, Lucy. That's been a, that's been a really great conversation. And I think there's a, a ton of really useful advice that I think that lots of us could, could take on uh, board, whatever age, whatever age uh, and stage we are with our, with our education and our, our lives. Um, so look, thank you. Um, I'd just like to uh, to to finish by asking um if you could if you could go back in time and talk to your 16-year-old self um and give give her a piece of advice uh, about studies, education, life generally, um career paths what what would what would be top of your mind? What would you uh, what would you say? Well, my 16-year-old self would be horrified uh, <laughs> where I am today because she'd be like, well, hand with the acting. Why are you not at the National Theatre? So my first job would be to reassure her that I'm okay and we did all right. But I think the most powerful piece of advice that I would give to myself was to be kinder uh, to myself than I was. Growing up through my education in my 20s, it was tough being an actor and it was tough to face all the rejection that I face. I had a lot of failure early on in my life, which is difficult to deal with. And I think the kindness would be connected to backing myself that it was going to be okay. Hmm. Trust, trust yourself and you'll end up in the right room and you'll have the right conversations. And so that combination of giving myself a break and just allowing myself, I'm a big believer in, for me, instinct and intuition are really important qualities that have served me well. And it's not the same for everybody, but that, that would have been the area that I would have talked to my 16-year-old self. Just things might happen in a way that you don't expect or want right now. 
and it will be for the best and it will you'll end up in a much better place so i'd be i would i would be excited for her too that it wasn't the path she thought she was going to take but it was a much richer one that's fantastic um lucy if anyone wanted to to find you wanted to 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 look you up where, where could they where could they best do that the best port of call initially is our website, which is www.ideology.eu. And we spell ideology without an E, just so that that doesn't confuse you. So it's I-D-O-L-O-G-Y. And that will point you in the right direction to be able to get into contact with us. Fantastic. Well, look, thank you once again. It's been a been an amazing conversation. Um, I'm very grateful. I know um, many of many of our listeners will have got a huge amount out of this conversation. So, thank you for giving up your time, um, and uh, and hope to hope to speak to you again soon. Thank you so much for asking me. Well, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. And thanks again, Lucy. So. If you're interested in finding out more, that link is going to be in the show notes. Um, that's www.idology.eu, ideology.eu. Um, do go over and check it out if you want to learn a little bit more about some of the topics that Lucy's been talking about. And that's a wrap on the first ever episode of the Exam Study Expert podcast. Woo! Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, I really hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you've got a lot out of it. Um, and I'd absolutely love to have your company here again soon. Until then, study well and wishing you every success in your exams. Thanks for listening to the Exam Study Expert podcast. Remember to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And please take a moment to write a review for our show in your podcast player.